And a pleasant good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, Episode 2. My name is Sam Lebowitz, and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Jack Hendon. Jack, it's been a long week. How are we doing today? I aged about a year this week, so I think that's kind of how I'm doing. What about you? Uh, the depression is setting in. It has been an exceedingly long week in Metzland, and as always, this is the flagship podcast for Mesmerized Online, bringing you yet another episode. Last week, we talked about uh, everything COVID-related to the Mets and what it was going to be like. But as the Mets, we're going to have to uh, play nine games in six days. And instead of nine games in six days, the Mets only played eight because our planet had different plans. Because the Mets and the Marlins, in protest of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin... Uh, decided not to play on Thursday, which we will talk more about later. So it was only eight games this week, including three doubleheaders. On the diamond, the Mets went three and five. And I'm going to tell you right now, there was some real, real bad baseball in especially the losses. Uh, series losses to both the Marlins and the Yankees, as well as being swept in two of the three doubleheaders. We have a lot of talk about in terms of things on the diamond, off the diamond also. Just so much Mets stuff happened uh which we'll get into so jack where do we want to start today um damn there are like seven or eight stories that we could pick from i think that it's probably best just before we get down the baseball path that we do talk about uh the social setting for this week sort of the underlying uh you know conversations the the broader political uh discussions that have been exchanged around the league around sports in general and i know that we try and keep politics out of sports but ultimately i think what we're looking at the same way we were looking at this you know some 70 odd years ago uh when jackie robinson uh first broke the color barrier this is not so much about politics as it is about other people's rights uh to the same privileges the same uh amenities uh the same possibilities uh, as others, uh, the Mets obviously wore the number 42 on their uniforms to commemorate Jackie Robinson on Friday night, but they also uh, followed suit on Saturday and again in the nightcap of the uh, Sunday doubleheader against the Yankees. So that was three games a whole weekend. Um, obviously, this centers around uh, what has been happening in Kenosha. It centers around a broader movement across the sports industry uh, between the NBA and the WNBA uh, and even to some extent Major League Baseball, though it's been a little bit of a scattered effort uh, to raise awareness uh, to the social injustices that are taking place, not only with the shooting of Jacob Blake uh, on Sunday afternoon last weekend, but also uh, the shooting that took place during the Kenosha protests that left uh one protester, a peaceful protester, dead. Uh, I mean, it's it was a really emotionally tender week, uh, to be totally honest. Uh, at least the way that it started. I mean, I'm still no, you know, not a day goes by where I'm not thinking about issues like these, and it's in that sense kind of foolish that we try and uh, you know avoid it with sports. And I think a really good example of that. In, in the sense of how we can't avoid it was just the way uh, that I as a fan felt, Sam, I'm sure you felt this way too, uh, through Wednesday's game while other teams were, you know, opting not to play in protest. And ultimately we saw, you know, some of the effects 
uh, that playing while this is happening can have on a player, most notably Dom Smith? Yeah, absolutely. The feelings that I had while watching the Mets and the Marlins play on Wednesday night, while about half the league were protesting and uh, had postponed their games, was uh, very conflicted. I almost didn't want to watch the game. I didn't really tweet about the game all that much. Uh, I know that I wasn't the only one who had mixed emotions. It was almost disappointing that the Mets were playing in general. Um, still don't quite know why they did. Uh, they said that it was uh, it was too close to game time to really make a decision like that. I'm not so sure I agree. But obviously we saw the results after the game, as uh, or even before the game, as, as Dominic Smith, uh, who is one of two black players on the Mets, kneel during the national anthem he was the only met to do so and after the game uh dom kind of became the the most visible face in, in sports this week as he spoke and broke down in tears uh, up on that stage uh alone um really without any visual or physical support from his teammates, which was something that was really, really hard to watch. And it became a very national story that, that Dom Smith was uh, uh, speaking about this in, in such an emotional manner. And uh, just speaking from my own perspective, if you weren't touched by that video, I, I don't know um, how else you, you, what else you would have to see to really be affected, especially someone like Dom, who is such a fan favorite and who yeah. this, organization really seems to look towards for for um, energy and, and positive feelings and vibes and stuff like that. And, and I, I personally, Dom's one of my favorite players on this team. And he really keeps the clubhouse loose and he keeps the clubhouse together and everyone on that roster seems to love him. And I had some real fears, and I know you did too, Jack, about how that would bleed over into Thursday because yeah. there was no guarantee that the Mets would postpone their Thursday game either and there was no guarantee that they would show any support uh, outwardly at least towards Dom uh, and I had a lot of stress going into that Thursday game and you know there was a lot of we'll, we'll touch on this later but this the kind of the stories that that were being pushed out on social media with the roadie video that got leaked and how exactly the Mets were going to handle the Thursday game uh, there was a lot of fear about how they'd actually uh, handle it. And from my point of view, if they had actually taken the field and played, um, I was going to be extremely disappointed. I don't think I would have watched that game. I would have been extremely angry. Uh, and, I, and I think, Jack, you feel the same, probably, right? Yeah, absolutely. I felt, honestly, from my experience online, uh, reading some of the responses to the presser that Dom did by himself, there, there did seem to be, I think, more apathy uh, than I'd expected. And I'm a pretty doom and gloom person, but I was very upset that not only so few people actually cared, but that so few people even understood, you know, what it meant to someone else to s just have other people, as he says, give their time and to care. Um, and then the fact that, you know, nobody explicitly... I think stood by Dom in the ways that we were expecting. Obviously, Michael Conforto said that he supported him, but he was also the only player that even took questions and explicitly said he would not kneel with him. Nobody was with Dom during the post game. And then I think the next, you know, 
16, 17 hours following that, I mean, probably a little bit more, we get to, you know, Thursday evening, and there's this, basically this tabloid break, uh, where a leaked video of Brody Van Wagenen has come out, and the outrage has, I think, so- somewhat unfairly dissipated in that we no longer are in this, uh, because someone so important to not only the organization, but to the sport as a whole, was hurting. And we sort of turned our ire toward the fact that, oh, you know, Rob Manfred wants the players to, you know, take the field, disappear, and then come back an hour later. And listen, like, obviously, it's more concerned. Rob's out of his element. Like, Brody was right. It was it was just tone deaf. I'm glad the Mets didn't follow through with it. I personally hope that they did that against his wishes and that there wasn't even a negotiation because I think it was that bad an idea that it deserved to be openly disrespected. And even after that game, with the the response that the Wilpons and Rob Manfred issued to the the leaked video that was very suspicious. If you haven't seen it, basically Brody Van Wagenen revealed to a room full of three people. We're not sure who those people were. He explicitly says while he's rocking a chair next to him very menacingly back and forth, says this cannot leave this room. Rob wants us to take the field, leave, and then come back an hour later. And Jeff's not Jeff Wilpon is not going to you know be open to it because of scheduling reasons, and Rob doesn't get it. And that whole he said, she said got tangled up, and that became very frustrating because you know at the end of the game we're not even talking about the fact that they did walk off, but you know we're sort of focused on this this letter that the Wilpons penned, the statement in which they misspelled Brody's name. Uh, so I mean there were a lot of distracting factors, but me personally, because I know I've been talking a lot. I was extremely proud that the team, both the Mets and the Marlins, took the stand that they did in the midst of all of that. Uh, not only the fact that they opted not to play, but obviously that they all stood with Dom and the presser. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that they actually wound up handling Thursday, um, once you actually got to 7, 10 p.m., very well. I think that the the gesture was very well handled. I really liked the touch by Lewis Brinson putting the Black Lives Matter t-shirt over home plate. Um, I, I, I was scared they would take the field an hour later at first uh, until uh, Gary Cohen in the booth was saying that they would not play. And then I think uh, the reporters and Joel Sherman had it first that they, they would not play. So I think that if they had played, it would have been an empty gesture. But given that they didn't play, I do believe that generally it was handled well. Um, the actual gesture itself. The lead-up to the gesture was a little messy, but uh, I I do think ultimately they handled it um, well. So, I think we've pretty much set our piece on all of that and the social backdrop for this week and how that actually tied in quite well with uh, Jackie Robinson weekend, Jackie Robinson Day, Jackie Robinson weekend, whatever you want to call it. Um, so let's get into baseball, Jack. And, and this, like I said earlier, a three and five week for the Mets. They got back on the field on Tuesday and looked completely lifeless. In fact, I had actually blocked out the results of those games. I couldn't actually remember. I, all I wouldn't have even known about the game. I, I completely forgot about them. Only thing I really remember from that series is the walkout, which I think is really impressive in itself yeah. but i'll turn it back over to you obviously yeah. just wanted to get that in because that was Absolutely. very important that's, to me. that's really the thing that stands out from that series and i think that's what we're going to remember 
uh, from this kind of week long term. But you have to remember that a couple days prior, they did not score in either game of a doubleheader against the Marlins. And in the nightcap of that doubleheader, John Birdie stole home. And that was a whole big thing. Um, and it was not good. And then the Wednesday game that they did play when some people thought maybe they shouldn't play was a Jacob deGrom start. He looked great. And it was nearly identical to his previous start before the whole COVID thing in Miami. Um, Jacob deGrom's next start, actually, tomorrow uh, or today, if you're listening to it on Monday, is against the Marlins again for his fourth time in a row. Which, uh, unconfirmed, but I think is the first time in baseball history, at least in like the modern era, that that's ever happened. I think Gary said it at least five or six times. It's a guy named Fred Fitzsimmons. Yes. So you're looking at least in the 40s uh, when they used to have like three starting pitchers. And like eight teams in the league. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They won that game, thankfully. Wilson Ramos had a a go-ahead hit. And that was it for the series against the Marlins because they had to walk out on Thursday. And then the five-game series against the Yankees. Oh, man, it could have been so much better. It could have been so much better, Jack. They got off to a hot start. Jack, you want to tell us about that first doubleheader game? Yeah, that was awesome, that first doubleheader game. I, I was, like, seeing them play again after the walkout, I was very proud of them, and I was very proud of Dom Smith even after Wednesday. And then, he, I mean, he came out the first game of that doubleheader. Michael Walker gave up, like, four runs. He struck out seven, but he gave up four runs, and he looked very much like Michael Walker. And I think just by hook and crook, they – Put some runs together, and Dom Smith had the, I think it was the game tying home run, right uh, in the in the fifth inning, or was it go ahead, go ahead? Yeah, they made um Chad Green their their daddy or baby rather. They were Chad Green's daddy that day. Yeah. Uh, that Pete day. Had, yeah, that day. Pete had to go ahead the tie game tying three run homer in the sixth, and then Dom homered, and then Jake Marisnik, who we did not know was going to be activated. We did not know he was anywhere close trade to coming back. Trade deadline, Jake Marisnik. Trade deadline acquisition trade, uh, Jake Marisnik hit the third home run of the inning off Chad Green, and the Mets won the game 6-4. to four. And then in game two, the Mets were the home team at Yankee Stadium, and Ahmed Rosario said that domestic abusers do not have rights and hit a walk-off home run in the seventh inning that very few people in the ballpark knew was a walk-off home run yep. off a roll to Chad and the Mets swept a doubleheader from the Yankees. And that was a great start to the weekend. And um, so after that win on Friday night, after they swept the doubleheader, uh, well, I don't think they, by textbook definition, won again this weekend. In fact, um, some may say they lost the next three games yes. um, in fairly painful fashion. Uh, today is Sunday when we're recording this, and we endured like six hours of mostly extremely painful Mets baseball. And they got swept in this doubleheader today. Obviously, they had a 7-2 to two lead in game one of the doubleheader with one out to get. There was some questionable, questionable bullpen calls. Yankees came back, won that game. And then, the again, the home team in game two, Gary Sanchez, with the go-ahead grand slam and extra innings. Yeah. Um Oh boy, it was a it was a tough day in Mets land today. After, you know, just kind of a long, mentally and emotionally exhausting week. And we didn't even play nine games. We got a day off. Yeah. We. I mean, it was a very exhausting Thursday, but there was a day where we didn't have to play. 
Like, I, I didn't even play in any of these games, and I feel exhausted. Yeah, I mean, we're holding up. I think we're doing a pretty good job not sounding exhausted. But that was like, I mean, we say this like every two weeks. This was the worst day of the year. Easily the worst day of the year. Like, one out away from basically clinching a series against the Yankees. And I think if we'd won that game, it would have been a much different story. The, the You know, the, the nightcap. But that's very, you know, superstitious on my end. But, like, yeah, I'm not exactly shocked that they came out looking pretty lifeless in game two. That's a tough, yeah. tough game from 45 minutes after. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, there, there are so many things wrong. Like, ninth inning sucked, but also, like, just we're very lucky, I think. That, seven. Seven. That, yeah, that, did I say ninth? I yeah. said ninth. Okay. Listen, none of us are used to this, so you're fine. Yeah. Well, we're very lucky that these are only seven inning games and that a lot of uh, the season was cut about, what, like 100 games less of baseball where we had to worry about Rick Porcello pitching. Like just, ev- I mean, every start except for the Washington one, I feel like has more or less gone the same. But sometime within the first two innings, you just don't feel like he's going to get out of the inning. And then he gets out of the inning, sometimes with a lot of noise. And then somehow he turns it into like five, six innings. But I don't know how anyone watches him and thinks how any major league executive, any scout, any person with a job in baseball looks at it and says that they'd rather have him than Zach Wheeler. It's it it's kind of sobering. We deserve it, but we do deserve it hurts. to an extent. He's given up first inning runs in every single start with the exception of his uh, previous start, uh, the first game of the doubleheader against the Marlins to start the week, which turned into a pretty uh, not-so-great start. You know, this pitching staff has labored this season for the most part, with the exception of DeGrom, who's been solid every single time out, as you expect. Mm -hmm. Um, No one else has really had, like, that great of a season I mean, David Peterson has been pretty good, but at the same time, uh, he hasn't been, like, astoundingly good. Um, he's learning. He's learning. You know, he's getting his feet wet at the big league level. And I do think that uh, I want to say that Jeremy Hefner has, has done a good job and there's been some improvement for certain Mets pitchers. Like, I do believe that Jerry's Familia looks a little better this year. And, I and you know, Edwin Diaz, he might have given up that home run to Aaron Hicks today and then the walk-off hit. But... I think anyone with eyes can see that he is a completely different pitcher this year than last year. He, he's rarely given up contact. It's just he's a, he's a different pitcher. However, on the reverse side, I think that there's something that's very obvious about this team that's hurting the pitching staff. And it's the fact that Wilson Ramos is like the worst defensive catcher I have ever watched. He doesn't frame and he doesn't block. It's, you can't throw off speeds in the dirt with him behind the plate. I think the whole system, it's, I almost feel guilty, like, putting, you know, the onus of this on the pitchers because people forget, like, the glory days, 2015-16, where our pitching was, like, lights out all the time. You know, we had Darno and Ploiecki, who were both considerably above average framers, and Darno was a pretty above average blocker. I mean, neither of them could really throw, but, like, that stuff goes a long way, and the team has really in a lot of respects. I mean, a lot of it has to do with Ramos putting the pitchers in a position to fail. But today it was just like, like 
I've been very easy on Luis Rojas. I'm sure the players really like him because he's made it this far through the organization. This was like entirely his fault. This this yeah. not, the seventh inning against the Yankees, like using Jared Hughes for a third straight day. He was on 34 pitches, like, and not taking him out after he hit Thyro Estrada, like he clearly didn't have it, and they left him in until they had no choice to use Diaz in a position that Diaz does not fare well in and never fares well in, putting him in with runners on base to just try and, you know, throw strikes and throw them the way he throws them when guys aren't on base. Like, there's a there's a Jekyll and Hyde effect with Diaz that, like, the Mets just keep rolling the dice on Hyde thinking that it's going to work out. I just, and uh, I, yeah. One one last note on um, Ramos behind the plate is that even today, there's, you know, he didn't play game two behind the plate. Ali Sanchez did. Sanchez hasn't really looked great behind the plate or super comfortable in his two starts there or three starts now but there's a considerable difference just in like the comfort of the pitchers and the amount of called strikes they get when it's Sanchez or you know uh too bad Tomas Nito Tomas Nito by the way confirmed that he was the Met that had COVID um and is uh we don't know how long it's gonna take for him to get back but uh god I hope Tomas is okay because this pitching staff could could use him really because he's an excellent defensive catcher but there's a considerable difference watching Ramos behind the plate versus watching Sanchez or Nito behind the plate. It's night and day. Um, but and then we'll get to you know to your point on on Rojas is absolutely everyone on this this roster for the most part knows him and, and likes him and has, has played under him before. But there is some serious you know managing skill missing. It, it, first of all, it seems like he completely misutilizes his bench. Yeah. To a point where it almost seems like sometimes he forgets he has a bench. Yeah. You know, pretty it's, obvious uh, pinch-hitting situations. Like on Friday night, uh, our, uh, this was in the Marlins series, actually. Ali Sanchez, his first start, he had multiple at-bats with runners on base. He had two at-bats. He stranded, I think, five runners in those two at-bats. Mm-hmm. And including a situation later in the game where it's like anyone with a brain would pinch hit for him. Yeah. Ali Sanchez is not a prospect or any significant kind of prospect. He has never had a bat. At least Tomas Nito won a batting title in single leg. Sanchez has never had a bat. So to let him hit with runners in scoring position is ridiculous sometimes. And, and that's not the only situation in which Rojas hasn't used his bench. And then the, the, the thing today where they were up five runs with three outs to get, and he had two men up in the bullpen to pitch. He had Jared Hughes, who had worked the previous two days, including, like he said, 34 pitches on Saturday. And they had Drew Smith, who was freshly up from the alternate site. We don't know how much he had pitched at the alternate site. We don't know last time he had thrown a bullpen session or a simulated game was. But he was up in that bullpen, just like Hughes, getting ready. And he didn't use the, uh, Smith. He used Jared Hughes. Hughes got, you know, the first two outs. He had two outs and a runner on base, basically. And then he walked Tyler Wade, which in and of itself is a, a sin. And then he hit Tyra with Strata. And at that point, it's like, all right, cool. Time run is on the undeck circle. Luke Voigt pokes a little single through the shifted infield, scores two runs. And then it's like, all right, we should maybe bring in uh, Edwin Diaz because the time run is up the plate now. And it, it all felt like it could have been avoided if he just used Drew Smith because I feel like Drew Smith could have gotten three outs. I think yeah. you think that too. And I mean, I also, just before we get into Smith, because I just got curious because Jared Hughes looked, like, 
he looked exactly like a guy who just had pitched two game, you know, two games in a row and thrown 34 the day before. So I, you know, I checked Hughes's ERA after this because I figured he'd given up like, you know, a, a boatload of runs like they were all to his name, but they're all unearned because Andres Jimenez, the third baseman, I didn't even realize this looking back at this. He committed two errors, one to lead off the inning, a throwing error to Dom Smith that Smith could have picked, but also you have to remember like Jimenez is not a third baseman. He never was in the minor leagues. He's a good defender, but you can't just take a good defender and just put him at any position because, you know, he has an ability to catch the ball. Like there are a lot of positional factors there. And one of the things that came out, you know, in the middle of that inning was on a base hit to right field. I think it was the Voight base hit uh, where Clint Frazier or was it Clint Frazier who tried to go to third base? Frazier tried. Sorry. Estrada. Estrada tried to go to third base. Conforto threw a seed. Jimenez was right there, caught the ball, put the tag on. Estrada didn't slide. And the ball came out of Jimenez's glove. Like, you know, J.D. Davis probably makes that tag. I don't really know why in a five-run game they... Right there, Guillaume has more... You Guillaume know, too. Guillaume just sat there the whole game. Yeah, he's played more third base than Jimenez. Yeah, it's just it's just a weird combination of undermanaging and overmanaging that I, th- I don't know. I'd like to think because he's new, he'll get past this. But in this season, at least, like, I don't really have the patience for it. I don't know. I mean, we're now looking at, like, what, four or five games where it's, like, there's a clear bullpen decision or a clear pinch hit type, pinch run type. I mean, his pinch running decisions, too, have been kind of suspect at times. Like, I don't know. Maybe part of it's bad luck, but he's also just, like, making bad decisions. Uh, I don't see why you don't go to Drew Smith there. And it was almost perfect that Smith in the second game came in for the 10th inning. And got, like, blasted. Yeah. I mean, we worried about Clint Frazier, like, taking us prisoner. We worried about Aaron Judge maybe coming back or LeMahieu doing something. And instead, we have Aaron Hicks and Gary Sanchez waking up. Two guys hitting under 200 with the big hits. Two guys hitting under 200 had the big home runs today. And it's, it was painful. I mean, I didn't even mention the fact that after game one, Rojas said why he didn't use Drew Smith was because he was freshly up. What kind of sense does that make? He said, I don't trust a guy who's freshly up from the alternate site to get me three outs up by five. That's what he said. It was a weird answer, and it's an answer that doesn't make sense because then he he turns around and uses him anyways in a tie game in extra innings, and it comes crashing down around him. And And then we have the Hughes thing where he trusts Hughes because on three days rest when he's tired, the sinker sinks more. So, which has always been a weird thing that seems to be a narrative around uh, sinker ballers a lot. Like I remember Jerry's Familia had the same thing where the more he gets used, the the more his sinker moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're dealing with seam shifted wake. Seam shifted wake. I'm not sure how many of shifted woke. Sam, I'm not sure how many of our uh, listeners know what seam shifted wake is, Jack. Um, yeah. Stay the bullpen, not very good. It could be better if, um, like, maybe if we had, like, an elite reliever who could go two innings at a time and through, like, four-plus pitches. But, no, we don't have anyone like that, right, Jack? No, I don't think we do. Uh, Oh, we have a guy who started today who fits that description, but he's a starting pick. Um, My general philosophy on Seth Lugo is even though he's, like, been good in his two starts, it's still only six and two-thirds total. 12 Ks, one run, four hits, two walks. 
good. He, he's looked great. We, we know what Seth looks like when he's good, and this is what he looks like when he's good. But I would so much rather have high leverage Seth Lugo who can give you one inning or two innings late in the game when uh, you're winning than Seth Lugo who's on a pitch limit and is going to go three, maybe four innings at this point to start a game in you know pretty low leverage situations. Like I'd rather him getting those high leverage innings late in the game when the Mets are winning rather than lower leverage in a scoreless game early on because yeah. they've lost. They've, he's been good. He's been as good as he possibly can be in both those starts for his pitch limit, and they lost both games anyways. Yeah. Well, the alternative here is that, you know, because you basically have to decide where you put Seth Lugo, someone as good as Seth Lugo, you will only have one of them and two places to put him. You could just trade for another guy who's like him, you know? I mean, it's trade deadline time. The Padres are getting everyone. It's, yeah, why don't we talk about that? Why don't yeah. we talk about transition and talking about the trade deadline? Because uh, I'm going to be honest, this day in which the Mets had two really tough losses to the Yankees feels like the type of day in which this current Mets front office, which we will have to endure for another couple months, uh, panics and makes a boneheaded trade to try to sneak into the playoffs, you know, like a, it, it, they added Vientos to the player pool. They've added Mauricio and Beatty to the player pool. They added Matt Allen and Francisco Alvarez last week to the player pool. So the top five prospects in the system are all in the player pool right now, which is terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's- I ran a poll that uh, is on our Twitter account at PGE pod underscore MMO. I asked uh, some of the fans, and this is still an active poll. You can still vote. Uh, the trade deadline being 4 p.m. tomorrow, which is not very far. Uh, you know, what should we do? 27% said buy, 43% said hold, and 19% said depends on today's games. Only 11% said sell, which makes sense because ultimately we went over this yesterday. There isn't really anything to, to sell. Um, yeah. I was kind of a watch today's game guy because this is a team, this is the kind of team that you're going to face in the playoffs when the playoffs matter. And we just got completely like blown to smithereens. But I mean, on the other end of it, John Heyman, who's a pretty direct link to the Mets front office and generally has the scoops for what they intend to do, uh, is already pointing out that the team is looking to trade for a catcher, a starter, another bullpen piece. They have a very ambitious plan, evidently. Ken Rosenthal's already thrown out Christian Vasquez as a, as a possible uh, pickup for New York. He's a free agent at the end of this year. No, uh, actually, I'm going to correct you on that one. Vasquez has, has a, a 2021 on his contract, too, and an option for 2022. So, Okay, um, good. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that's been a link, and it's a link that makes sense because if you know the Wilpons, they, um, if, you've, if you've done it against the Mets— you can do it for the Mets. And Vasquez put on a show in New York uh, when the Red Sox came to, to New York early in uh, the season, and it feels like a very Mets target. Um, but at least, you know, it seems like with the link to Vasquez, at least they're, at least, I keep saying at least, they're cognizant of the fact that Wilson Ramos has been bad. It's not like they're forcing uh, that to keep happening. If there is a, a trade for a catcher on the market, it seems like they'd at least be interested. Um, apologize for that noise. But, uh, 
they could trade for a starter. They could trade for a bullpen piece. If they trade for a starter, you can move Seth Lugo back to bullpen. If they trade for a bullpen piece, you can keep Seth Lugo in the rotation. If you trade for, like, Christian Vasquez, do you try to, like, snag uh, Matt Barnes in that deal, too? Yeah. They don't have any starters to pick from. They're kind of a kind of a trash bin there. But, I mean, your guy, he does kind of – I mean – He's not Seth Lugo, but he does kind of fit that high leverage profile that you're looking for. I mean, at that point, if you're, you know, if you are going to make that deal, I don't even know if it's really worth it. You're probably giving up a lot of pro. You're already giving up at least more than one prospect for Vasquez because he has that option and because he's like a top five defensive catcher in the game, and the Red Sox know that. Like, God, I mean, this was this was such a cataclysmic 24 hours that like. They could just trade for everything to try and like redo this roster before you know new ownership can put a stamp on it in the offseason. Because otherwise, we're not going anywhere this year. Man, they could get real greedy too and like try to swing for Mike Clevenger or something. Like they yeah. do have prospect depth in the player pool right now to make multiple decent, you know, scaled trades. I hope they don't for the sake of the farm system. Um, I, I think that if there's a guy in that player pool that I would be like relatively okay with him trading i think it's vientos um never been like huge on him but obviously i I think i'd rather them keep him than trade him for christian vasquez i think you could maybe do like a vientos and thomas sapucky for like christian vasquez and maybe you can swing for matt barnes in there too maybe you add a player being later in there also but like that would help the team quite a bit still don't think even with that deal this is like a team that can make a deep run in the playoffs um It's a tough look right now. It's it's uh, uh, whether he stands bad or actually makes a deal because you know he's going to get fleeced in any deal that he makes. That's just been the track record for his trades. And it, if they don't improve the team, then this is at, at best a second place team or a wild card team that sneaks in and gets bounced first round. It's a lose lose. I think so too. I mean. The thing about it is, like, especially after the video stunt with Brody, it's like, you know he's going to just... I mean, anything that Jeff Wilpon wants right now, he's going to get. Because this is basically his last stand before new ownership, which is, for everyone else, really exciting. Because not only will this current ownership, the scourge, uh, be lifted from our midst, but we're going to... ...who has a lot of money, Steve Cohen. Uh, in case you guys missed it, he won uh, the auction, uh, the bidding between uh, the three groups that uh, yeah. were left in the uh, the Josh Harris group, which is the same Josh. group that owns the 76ers, and the uh, Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez-led group, which even if they had won the auction, it's a situation in which, you know, you you bought the car, but you don't have enough money for gas um, because they were spread so thin across so many people that, you know, how are they even going to pay for players? So yeah. Cohen was going to be the guy. Cohen was always going to be the guy. I think that you know that. I think that I know that every single story that we heard about Steve Cohen gave this kind of vibe about the guy where he just was not going to let him get outbid he was not gonna let himself get outbid he's got 
It's like a fourteen billion dollar net worth. It's I, there's some people that say it's like closer thirteen point seven, something like that. It's it's absurd. It's absurd. Yeah. He beat the richest owner in baseball, the richest single owner in baseball. Uh, if he gets approved, which I think it was John Heyman also says that he already has votes in his favor. He needs twenty three out of the thirty ownership groups in Major League Baseball to approve him. Um, and because he already had a stake in the Mets before this whole began, he had like a 5%, was it a 5% uh, ownership stake? Uh, because he already had an ownership stake, it seems like it'd be a pretty simple process to get him approved, even despite the kind of sketchy uh, happenings in his financial career as a hedge fund guy. Um, and it doesn't even seem like the Wilpons are going to be missing out on too much money after the first sale went through with Cohen. Because yeah. we don't know an official figure yet for what the winning bid was. Now they're in the negotiation stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Wilpons are still going to get their, their $2 billion plus for this team. Um, let's not count our chickens before they hatch and say that Steve Cohen will be owning this team. He is most likely going to be owning this team. Mm-hmm. But, There's no uh, Jeff this time around. Uh, Saul yeah. Katz left him out of the, the boardroom, which is huge. Huge. I'm not going to celebrate really until the ink is dry, yeah. but maybe let's speculate just a little bit. Yeah. First one yeah. is when uh, Steve Cohen, Mr. Moneybags, uh, moves into the office. What is the first order of business for Steve? Give Conforto the bag. Give Michael Conforto an extension. Yes. We so seldom put together hitters. We so seldom develop hitters with a profile like Conforto. I think, like, at least last year when the offense was its mo- at, was booming, Conforto was probably, like, our third best hitter. But even then, like, you cannot let him walk at the end of the season. He's going to make a lot of money. He's going to learn how to hit even better somewhere else because of the way that organizations like the Braves and the Dodgers and even, like, the Padres and Rockies have started to, you know, come to develop their hitters. The Cubs also come to mind, like... You cannot let him go to another team and terrorize you. He's getting better and better, and he's off to such a great start this year. And I put out an article on Mesmerize this week talking about Conforto, not just his production, but his leadership on this team. Uh, He's the Players Association rep that the Mets elected, and he he stood by Dom Smith on on Thursday, uh, along with Dylan Batances, who, by the way, is on the injured list now, which I haven't mentioned that and Robinson Cano talking about the decision to sit out of Thursday's game and um, do that demonstration that they did. He was instrumental in organizing that with Miguel Rojas, who's the Marlins player rep. Um, So it's not only is Michael getting better as a hitter, he is also taking a more active stake as a leader for this clubhouse. I didn't realize how long he's been here. It's been like, it's like DeGrom, Syndergaard, and... Conforto are the three longest tenured Mets, right? I, I believe so. He's been up since 2015 as a, a fresh-faced 22-year-old who was playing left field every day for a pennant-winning team. And then we, we were all there through the struggles in 2016 where he got sent down. We were all there when he broke out in 2017 and then hurt his shoulder. We were all there to see that the shoulder injury kind of sapped him of his strength in 2018. We were all there to see him come back full force last year and hit 33 home runs. And he's been even better this year. Maybe not the home run power isn't super there. He's only got five home runs right now. But he's, he's got, currently has a career high OPS. 
uh, currently has a career high on base percentage, currently has a career high WRC plus. He's like, uh, at least midweek when I wrote that article, he was fifth in the National League in WRC plus. I don't have it right in front of me right now, but he's getting better and better. And as he heads closer to his, his 30s, he's 27 now, this, I agree with you wholeheartedly, they need to extend him. And I yeah. think if you get it done right now, you can still get it done on a, on a pretty team-friendly basis. Yeah. Next year is going to be nuclear for him. I mean, that's like the contract year, and it's going to be a full season probably. Uh, knock on wood, obviously. But, you know, the other option for him, if he doesn't extend Conforto, which hopefully he does, is to either sign JT Real Muto or make a trade and extension deal with Francisco Lindor. Because those are two very legit, very young, very exciting players who are going, who are approaching the free agent market. Um, yeah, Real Muto is uh, is set to hit the free agent market this year, this coming off season, and then Lindor the off season after. And there's been trade rumors for Lindor uh, out of Cleveland for like over a year now. Um, and I really I think that that's the move that I want. Obviously, Real Muto would be a great move. It'd be a great move to sign him long term. He's athletic enough so that he could probably stick behind the plate, even in a four or five year deal. And if not, he's athletic enough to maybe play like a third base or a right field or something down the line. I don't even know. But Francisco Lindor is the type of star that is the kind of move that I feel like if Cohen really wants to set the tone when he gets here, go for it, man. The same thing they did with Santana with Johan when they brought him in the yeah, trade yeah. for and extend kind of deal. We don't see it very often, but that would be a hell of a statement for Cohen to come in and make a move like that. Anything that would remind a Met fan of the 04 to 08 off seasons, you, you, I mean, we haven't had an off season like the, the Pedro Beltran off season ever since, really? since 05. Like the, I, I always remember hearing about like this, the new Mets, like, you know, Beltran explaining it. Like, I mean, obviously the, the New York Mets, but it's this idea that, you know, they just bring superstars in, they attract them. One offseason, they're getting Pedro and Beltran, and then the next it's, you know, trading for Delgado, getting, you know, Paul LaDuca, and, you know, signing probably at the time the best closer in the National League, who was Billy Wagner. I mean, that was like, I mean, if we could get another, like, elite reliever at some point, I mean, the contracts are shaky. The contracts are tricky because a lot of guys come over and it, it just becomes difficult because... Relievers I don't know thick. what the reason is. Usually it comes down to health and the workload they have before they come over. But, I mean, damn, we haven't had, like, we haven't had, I think, a lights-out reliever. I mean, this weekend especially has made me kind of miss those days where you could just, like, you could call on Familia in, you know, when he was, like, the freshly minted closer in 2015. And then, you know, the year after that, you have that, like, primetime closer in 2016 which was Familia who had the save streak and obviously tapered off at the end but you know what if he doesn't have it you just go to Jerry Blevins to pitch to a lefty you go to Addison Reed I mean Addison Reed is like I've never I've never seen a season like the one he had four years ago let's talk about great segue what we are uh running out of time a little bit we're going to close out the show soon but let's talk about Addison Reed for a minute because oh my god Oh my God! Addison Reed is probably the my favorite Mets reliever that I've ever watched. That badass, sixteen, gunslinger man. The way he'd walk off the mound, flip his cap up. He was like a knight. Is the he was like a knight flipping like his mask up or whatever. It was yeah. awesome. He it was, was awesome. so good. Watch. I'm gonna say on this day actually because we did an on this day segment last 
show for our inaugural episode. And actually, on this day in 2015 is when the Mets got Addison Reed from the Diamondbacks in exchange for Matt Koch and Miller Diaz. Diaz never made it. Matt Koch has been up and down for the Diamondbacks. Uh, thank God they did that because, oh, my God, Addison Reed was so much fun to watch. When he struck out Hunter Pence in the wild card game in 2016 with the bases loaded, electric moment. Electric that moment. That game. Never, so, never seen a reliever get out of a jam in a playoff game like that. I mean, that was like – and then there was – I mean, people talk a lot about 2016 because that was a full season of him, and it was just like lights out crazy stuff. But the Mets basically picked him up in September of 2015, like heading into that last month. It looked like they might be able to run away with the playoffs, but they still had that series of the Nationals. He was like lights out in that series. And then he had, I mean, in total, his first 15 appearances with the Mets. He went to his first 15 appearances in a month, 15 appearances without allowing a run. That's 14 innings. He had like, good. I'm looking at the game logs now. He had 15 strikeouts, four walks, 10 hits, no runs. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. He, he should have been their setup, man by the end of that season, but we love Tyler Clippard, who was hurt. We did too much, too much love to Tyler Clippard. Terry Collins, man, when Terry Collins, like, when you entered Terry Collins' circle of trust, you did not leave until your arm fell off. Random Mets. Random Mets. We got to get to random Mets. I got a random Mets whose arm fell off. Prime time example, 2016. The bullpen in 2016 would have been so much better if this dude had gotten, like, he basically got ran to the glue factory by Jerry by Terry Collins. That's Jim Henderson. Dude was six oh, foot five, Canadian product, like like thirty four years old. But he he threw like ninety five, ninety six, and at that height, like it comes out a lot harder. I just remember him being so good at the beginning of that season, and I think there was a game he pitched where he threw like it was like a sixteen pitch at bat to Ichiro against the Marlins because Ichiro was a Marlin and. He threw like 38 pitches in that outing. And then Terry used him the next freaking afternoon. Like, and his shoulder just never came back. Terry Collins, like. Henderson, just, Henderson was a, he, he was coming off of an injury. He was like a, he had been the Brewers closer at one point. Yeah. Mets got him off for a, for a, a song uh, on like a minor league deal or something. Looked good. His velocity was back after being hurt or something. And for like a month, Terry Collins used him like every other day or like two out of three days. And his velocity, you could see it just going down, down, down. He was like 96, 97 at, you know, opening day. And then by like mid-May, he was 93, 92. And he was just cooked. By June, he was back on the injured list. He yeah. had like a 420 ERA. And then, I mean, he came back and his velo had kind of fallen off. I mean, he was just more hittable. It was kind of unfortunate anyway who's your guy you gotta have a guy my guy my guy i feel like is almost a bit more random um i don't quite have a, a such an easy transition we talked about terry collins reliever usage and went right into jim Henderson, which is perfect a lot of them um the guy i picked for this week was uh a, a, an incredible member of the 2012 mets who played 17 games he was a catcher but he was most known for a pitching performance yeah i know this i know this do it Rob Rob Johnson, yeah. Rob Johnson, Rob Johnson, electric factory. Rob Johnson. He hit 250 for the Mets with a 587 OPS. He had two doubles and 58 plate appearances. Man, Rob Johnson. Yeah. Rob Johnson, hell yeah, man. Rob Johnson. 
He pitched in a game against who was it? He pitched against Blue Jays. It was like a it was a blowout. It was, it was like a real bad Johnny start. It was a really bad Johnny start. Rob Johnson, who's a Montana native, who had previously spent like four years with the Mariners as their backup catcher, and it was on May 18th against the Blue Jays in a 15 or 14 to five loss. He pitched a 10 pitch one two three eighth inning with a strikeout. And like this is a dude who. If you saw him walking down the street, you'd be like, that guy's a professional athlete. But man, just oh, yeah. that's, that's a little mean. Well, he's a he's a king. He can't. He can't. Rob, no, if you're listening to this, first this, off, I'm sorry. This is I think a, you're great. No, Second off, you got to tell me how you caught Frank Francisco. Come on the podcast and tell us how you caught Frank Francisco. Bob Johnson, if you're listening to this or if you read Metsmerized, we'll give you a shout out and we'll have you on the podcast. And, you know, we'd love to have you, Rob Johnson. You're 38 now. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're living in Montana again where you grew up. But, you know, this is a pro Rob Johnson podcast and we'd love to talk to you. Jack, uh, why don't you um, introduce the mailbag and, and, and get us going for sending us off for next week? For sure. Uh, thank you for the, uh, thank you, Sam. Uh, mailbag. So this is a new segment we're going to be doing. Uh, we're basically going to ask you a question. Uh, we'll field your answers. We'll also ask this over Twitter so you don't have to commit this to memory. Uh, give us your answers either in the comments uh, on Metsmerized or on Twitter. Uh, again, we'll make this very available, but we want to know what you guys think about seven inning games. There's been a lot of discourse around it. We didn't have enough time to get on it today, but I'm like very, very, I'm very stuck on whether I like it or not. Uh, I'm kind of looking for the one answer that's going to like blow my mind. So give us that answer. We'll read a few out loud uh, on the podcast next week, and then we'll give you another question uh, to tide you over. Yeah. uh, I definitely have opinions on it too. Um, they seem to flow pretty well for the most part, but then that seventh inning sneaks up on you and it's like, whoa. Uh, Today was a bad seven inning. If you, if you are listening this deep in the podcast, thank you so much. <laughs> we really do appreciate that. And um, send us your answers. We'll have a tweet sent out by the time the episode's out. And you can give us your answers for what you think about seven inning games. Do you like them? Do you hate them? Do you want more of them? Do you want every baseball game to be seven innings? Do you want every baseball game to be three innings? Do you just want no baseball? Because after today's games, that's kind of how I feel right now. But I think that's all the time that we have. Thank you so much for sitting through 50 minutes of two 20-year-olds rambling about baseball. Uh, my name is Sam Lebowitz. It's been a pleasure with Jack Hendon and Mets fans. Have a pleasant good evening.